Welcome to The Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This show is brought to you by Osiris, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. There are over 320 million people in this country, less than half of whom are registered to vote. Across that spectrum, some of us care about politics more than others. I think it's often the case that as we move through life, we find ourselves pushed into the arena for one reason or another. Before we dive in, I want to quickly share how that happened for me. I've always been politically conscious and followed current events throughout my life. As a child, I watched the nightly news with my parents every night, both local and national. So I was always aware. I always watched conventions, debates, election night returns. But it was after I joined the Avett Brothers and had the opportunity to speak with legislators at the Grammys about the importance of music education that I began to really get involved and pursue activism. I spoke with members of a congressional delegation and I told them straight up, I was not a very good student in school. I didn't do well in math. I didn't do well in English. I had no interest. It was music and music programs that my public school offered that kept me interested that kept me wanting to get up in the morning and go. But then about a year later, my daughter was diagnosed with cancer. And I began to learn about the intricate, confusing labyrinth that is our healthcare system in this country. It didn't take long for my wife and I to realize how little funding pediatric cancer received from the federal government, how there have been very few pediatric cancer drugs introduced and approved by the FDA over the past 20 years how most of the drugs that were given to children were actually adult drugs given at a lesser dosage. And this is where politics begins. This is where activism really begins, when it affects your life. Each and every registered voter in this country is a special interest group of one. Everybody's got different struggles. Everybody's got different concerns for our family. It's healthcare for my family. It could be a job for you. It could be the environment. It could be education. It could be all of the above. I have my priorities and you have yours. On Politics of Truth, we're going to talk to some of the best political analysts in the country. And we're going to help you make sense of this complex tangle of interests. Yours as an individual and ours as a country. But we're also going to talk to musicians. People who, by the grace of God, have a platform. And sometimes they use it to take a stand on an issue. And often that issue is personal to them. So we're going to talk to some of the members of your favorite bands. And we're going to ask them, how do you balance music, which is accepted by everyone and is very inclusive, with politics, which is often extremely alienating? You take one side of an issue and you're alienating someone else. And so what's that balance? What it, What is the balance? Are you ready? I am. Here we go. The race is on. Our first guest on the Politics of Truth is Robert Costa, national political reporter for The Washington Post. He is also the moderator of Washington Week on PBS. Washington Week is one of those shows that if you only can fit in a half hour of politics a week, 
that's one of the ones you may want to go to. There are a few others, but that's definitely one of them. He's also a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Robert Costa, welcome to The Politics of Truth. It's great to be back with you, Bob Crawford. You are the first guest on the first episode of this show. We're going to talk about the horse race of the 2020 campaign. This is the starting gun. The race is on, as they say. But wait, it's not. The race is not on. What is going on, Bob? What happened last night in Iowa? Total chaos in Iowa. The Iowa caucuses are supposed to tell you where this Democratic presidential race is going. And candidates spend months, years on the ground with these aides of theirs trying to build momentum to get some traction in a crowded field and then to not have a result on the night of the caucuses itself. It raises serious questions about the future of the Iowa caucuses. Will Democrats, will Republicans ever come back to participate in this process? Is it effectively dead moving forward? Because almost everyone in the country who follows politics seems to be disappointed the day after. And, and, and this isn't a new conversation, right? I mean, before this epic fail, there was a lot of talk about the, the viability, and that's the word of the day, right? Viable. The viability of the Iowa caucuses anymore. It's not representative of the nation as a whole, uh, demographically. Uh, is this just like the, the final nail in the coffin? And it's been a nail, Bob, that's been a long time coming. You think back to the history of the Iowa caucuses. It wasn't even a thing until 1976 when former Georgia governor Jimmy Carter at the time started spending a lot of time in Iowa ahead of this caucus system they had out there. It was barely known nationally in the 1970s, the Iowa caucuses. But Carter thought, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm nobody in national politics. I need to get some attention. So maybe spend some time in Iowa and uh, get a little bit of a little bit of a bounce there, and he did. And that catapulted not only Jimmy Carter to the nomination in 1976, it helped him, but it also catapulted Iowa into the fore of American politics. And ever since then, candidates have gone back to Iowa in both parties trying to get that bounce, the bounce into the New Hampshire primary, the South Carolina primary, Super Tuesday, the rest of the process. But it has suffered in the last few cycles. I think back to when I started covering politics about a decade ago and was spending time with Rick Santorum and Mitt Romney in the Republican nomination race of 2011-2012. Santorum won the Iowa caucuses, but it wasn't announced the night of, and it seemed like Romney had won. Then there were problems in 2016. Did Clinton win? Did Sanders win? And now in 2020 to have problems again, David Yepsen who's one reporter I really respect out in Iowa, a veteran. He's been around Iowa, Des Moines Register for years, now runs Iowa PBS, uh, their show called Iowa Press. He put the nail in the coffin himself this morning and said the caucuses have to die because you have to have results that are accountable and reliable, and you just can't count on Iowa anymore for those things. I got to think about all those local uh, affiliates and local television stations uh, and newspapers in Iowa that receive so much advertising money every four years or even really every two or three years. uh, It's really going to kill them, Uh, not to mention the diners and the hotels and and all that. If this goes away. But Bob, at the end of the day. Who cares? I mean, they've been feasting off the Iowa caucuses for decades. Uh, You're right. You feel for people who may lose some income. But Iowa's 90 percent white. 
it, it, it doesn't represent where the Democratic Party is. Democrats are not as old as the Iowa demographic. They're not as white as the Iowa demographic. So they're going to lose TV money. They're going to lose attention. But reporters like myself have spent more time in Sioux City, in Iowa City, Des Moines, West Des Moines, Ames. I sometimes feel like I've spent more time in Iowa, Bob, than I have in my own home state of Pennsylvania or my own home right now, Washington, D.C. I know Iowa so well. Does that really make sense in American politics? I'm not so sure. You're probably right, Bob. You know, what's funny, uh, having young kids, I have a, an eight-year-old son, and he came in the room this morning at, at 6 a.m., and I had the, the television on, uh, a network that, that you were actually on early this morning, and he said, he's like, what, what is the Iowa, what, what, what's a caucus? And when you have young children, they're asking questions all day long. What you realize as you're trying to answer every single question, you realize what you know and how much you actually know. So I don't want to put you on the spot, Bob, uh, but, but can you explain for our listeners who may not know what a caucus is, uh, how a caucus works? A caucus is the opposite of what we call a primary. A primary is what most listeners would probably understand because it happens in their own town. A primary is when you go into a a local gymnasium or school or a church basement and you walk up to a table, you sign in, you identify yourself as a voter uh, and you maybe put down your registration. Then you go up to a machine you pull the curtain and you pull a lever, Republican, Democrat, maybe you split the ticket and you pull the lever and the curtain opens and you go back. And what happens in that process is a paper ballot is used, sometimes electronic ballots, but it's a ballot and there's a record of what you've done. A caucus does not have that kind of record, that kind of formal record of where someone voted and how they voted. A caucus, in other words, is a gathering. It's a place where people literally caucus together. They gather with uh, some treats and some home-baked goods in gyms and living rooms. It's, it's not always formal settings. And they congregate and they decide who in that rooms with Biden, Sanders, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and they go to different parts of the room. And if people don't reach a certain threshold uh, in that caucus, then they maybe have to make a new decision. So it's an evolving vote that's what makes it different than a primary. It's not like you just walk into a caucus, say I'm for Buddha judge, and you walk out. You have to stay there and maybe make new decisions because you're trying to come up with a winner for the caucus. Who's going to have the most votes in the caucus? To say the least, it's complicated. It's fraught with issues because a lot of people don't understand how to tally the votes in a caucus. Do you send back all the votes of the original tally? Do you send back the final tally? Is it just one winner? And this is why this new app they used in Iowa in uh, this this caucus, the February 2020 caucus, uh, caused a lot of unease because for years it was just kind of people collecting a tally in a living room and sending it back to headquarters. And now you add an app to it. It's uh, made it uh, tense for people as they encounter the whole process. And to get deeper into the weeds, weren't they trying to get three different tabulations? They were. And this was new this year. They were trying to get tabulations not only for the final winner, but they're trying to get tabulations for the total vote uh, and the different kinds of votes that were evolving throughout the night, the different segments of the votes, the top finishers, uh, how many were with the top finishers, how many votes total were at the caucus. It, it, uh, it led to a, sh- a, a, a shutdown. I mean, they could not report because of discrepancies and misunderstandings about what to report, which numbers should be reported. 
it led to a crisis in the Iowa Democratic Party, a crisis that many people saw coming uh, months ago. You know, you you look at uh, the Trump administration and it's almost as if the president, uh, to be kind, shoots himself in the foot often. He'll have great economic news and then he'll he'll tweet something or say something ridiculous and and it, he just points to uh, his sharp edges to um, to put it to put it lightly. You got to think for for the Republican Party and for the Trump for the Trump, uh, the candidate going into this election cycle, this is the gift. The Democratic Party is the gift that keeps on giving. When when I speak to White House officials, I cover the White House, Congress and campaigns. They feel optimistic. And it's notable that the Iowa caucuses happened on Monday night in Iowa. And then Tuesday night, the day after, the president goes to Capitol Hill for his State of the Union address And then on Wednesday, there's the final impeachment vote in the Senate trial. He's likely to be acquitted. So as the Democrats struggle in Iowa and look ahead to the New Hampshire primary, the White House does feel pretty good based on my reporting. Yes, they're mired in an impeachment trial. They don't love that. It has complications. It raises serious questions about President Trump's conduct. But from a political perspective, they believe he's going to be acquitted this week by Senate Republicans. And they believe in the State of the Union address, he can outline some of how the the economy has grown under his watch and, and try to take credit for that. But the White House knows it's not all uh, a cakewalk between now and November. A second term just isn't sitting there for the taking. As much as the White House is optimistic privately and publicly, they look at the 2018 midterms. They saw the erosion of President Trump's support and Republican support in many suburban districts, which led to the Democratic takeover of the House. And they also look at the Democratic field and they think maybe Senator Sanders as a Democratic socialist could be a a foil they would welcome because they could counter him as uh, too extreme and and argue against his candidacy in that way. But they also see Mayor Bloomberg, the former New York mayor on the horizon, sitting there spending millions of dollars in Super Tuesday states. And they wonder, could Bloomberg, who's pretty moderate compared to other Democrats, be a threat if he ever managed to win the nomination? And even with Sanders, there's some private concerns that, yes, they could argue he was a democratic socialist, but he has populist appeal. He has working class appeal. He speaks to many people's grievances about the establishment in this country, how they feel frustrated with the economy and the health care system. And they know that President Trump, though he focused on immigration in 2016, he has been a grievance anti-establishment politician himself. And they know that that sort of politics, that style of politics, it carries real power. Yeah, you, you hear often that a lot of uh, uh, Bernie supporters or some Bernie supporters in 2016, after he left the race, they went and actually voted for Trump. I don't know what the statistics are on that, but I, I know it did happen, uh, at least occasionally. You're right. It, it did to some level because a lot of those voters were new voters who came out for President Trump and they may have liked Senator Sanders. And, and it's hard for some voters I meet to grapple with the idea that wow, a Sanders voter could also be a Trump voter. And it's mostly because that voter feels like the global economy has failed them. And so it's not that surprising to see these voters look to anti-establishment politicians, people they see as outside of the system for solutions. And President Trump with his border wall in 2016 and the concentration on immigration provided some of those voters with an answer. But Senator Sanders is speaking to those same voters and saying, he doesn't want to take a hard line in immigration, but he will offer them Medicare for all, an expanded state, uh, more support. And so when you're in 
as a reporter going around communities that have been hard hit by the global economy, you do see in places where manufacturing has been gutted an appetite for a new kind of politics, uh, whether it's nationalism and President Trump's version of Republican politics or it's Senator Sanders and his progressive vision of the world and the expansion of the state under democratic socialist ideas. A couple weeks ago, you spent time on the ground in Iowa with Senator Sanders. You wrote a, a, a great article uh, in in the Washington Post about about his candidacy and about the candidate. Uh, I mean, what did you sense? What who had the energy on the ground? It was like two weeks ago, I believe. Who wh- what did you sense as far as who people were really excited about? I picked the perfect time to go to Iowa, in my opinion, because I went, Bob right after Christmas and into the new year. And this is a time when almost no one else seemed to be in Iowa because they were home. But I thought as a reporter, get out there and just follow around Sanders for a while. He had been inching up in the polls. And what I saw was so interesting to me, seeing Sanders up close as one of the only reporters there in that, that holiday week. I covered Sanders deeply in 2016, spent a lot of time with him on the trail and in 2016, he talked a lot about revolution and uh, democratic socialism. It was a radical candidacy in many ways. This time around, he had that same spirit, but he didn't use the word revolution in the same way. Instead, it was a focus on health care costs, rage over health care costs. And he was speaking to people's unhappiness with the health care system again and again. And he wasn't framing himself as some kind of democratic socialist who's going to change the country or be a revolutionary. He was saying to suburban voters, older voters, I'm your candidate. I'm not just the candidate for the college campuses. And so you see in Senator Sanders 2020, a candidate that's evolved, that's become more seasoned and has modulated his presentation, not necessarily his message or his values at all, but he's he's changed and tweaked how he presents his ideas because he's trying to get that national base and really be the nominee if he has a chance for the whole Democratic Party. So do you think if he gets the, the nomination, he will moderate, uh, particularly with health care? The big thing that, that uh, everyone talks about with his health care program is where it would abolish or end private health insurance that is a that he is won't a sticky walk away issue from it. for he just won't he walk will away not. from it. No, in fact, I asked him about that. I said in a long interview I had with him, I said sitting there in a hotel conference room uh, with this veteran senator, I said, "Are you going to walk away from this? Are you going to be someone more in the middle?" And he said, "Never, never." And he said, "They're going to have to come to me. I'm not going to have to come to them because he believes if he actually wins the White House, he needs to have a mandate to try to pursue Medicare for all, and that's what this campaign for him is all about." And I'm not even sure based on my reporting, that he would go with a moderate vice presidential nominee. He may go all in and say we're going to go left-left on the whole ticket and really make a case that this country wants wholesale change. And it's it's a prospect that does alarm some Democrats. You see some unease from Secretary Clinton to others who have spoken publicly that they feel alarmed about Senator Sanders and his ascendancy because they don't want to see the Democratic Party move in that direction. They think it could be a political uh, problem for many Democrats who are running in tough districts and tough states. George McGovern. I mean, that it's what comes to my mind. I could see it like you talked about. It could go either way, right? There is this populist energy in the country. It's obviously it's in the Republican Party with Trump and it's in the Democratic Party with Bernie. So it can go one way or the other. But my mind keeps going back to the McGovern presidential well, campaign. I mean, that, of that's, the, that's the real debate, right? Because Senator Sanders, if he's the nominee, it could be McGovern like. 
but they used to say that about President Trump in 2016, that he was going to be a disastrous general election candidate. He would get swept by Secretary Clinton and get he's in the White House. So at one level, there, it's, a, it's a possibility that Senator Sanders could lose in a disastrous way as the nominee. But we also live in a time of Brexit and global nationalism and tumult and political systems across the world. And so in that sense, almost anything's possible. So I hesitate to lean into the George McGovern idea. Why don't we talk about some of the other candidates uh, coming out of Iowa? And everyone was given a little pass, at least for now. They, you didn't have, you had everybody gave a victory speech, so, so to speak, and no one had to concede. So I think what what you're hearing is one of the other big winners may have been Mayor Pete Pete Buttigieg. Um, I'm not the first person who's had trouble with his name. Buttigieg. Uh, talk about his Buttigieg. Uh, talk about his candidacy and how he looks like going into New Hampshire. What's so interesting about Buttigieg's moment right now is can he, does he have a chance of consolidating the moderate wing of the Democratic Party? A year ago, it would almost seem absurd that the f- mayor of South Bend, Indiana, this small town in northern Indiana, could somehow compete with former Vice President Biden, uh, eight-year Vice President under President Obama to be that standard bearer for the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. But here we are in February 2020 and Buttigieg is making a case that he could be that person. If Biden fades for some reason, Buttigieg's – if he comes out of Iowa strong and does well in New Hampshire, he could survive until Super Tuesday because he's raised so much money and say to moderate Democrats, give me a shot. Uh, to be, take on Sanders one-on-one instead of Biden. And that's why South Carolina ma- matters so much for Biden. If Buttigieg gets a bump out of Iowa and maybe even New Hampshire, then you have the South Carolina primary. Uh, majority African-American electorate in the Democratic Party down there. Uh, they have long been uh, f- fans of Biden. He's been a favorite and been leading many polls, almost all polls in South Carolina. And so that's – for him, that's the showdown that – really matters because if he can win in South Carolina, Biden will go into Super Tuesday with some strength and say, I'm one of the only people who can win across the Democratic Party, not just in these majority white states, but in a state that has a majority black population. Nevada is going to matter a lot because it has Latino voters. Uh, But Buttigieg continues to hold on. And what you're seeing right now is competition for that moderate uh, positioning in the race between Biden and Buttigieg, but also Senator Klobuchar is still in the mix a little bit. It will be interesting to see if she drops out, if she's in single digits in Iowa or not. Does she stay in? How much money does she have? And then on the left, Senator Sanders is rising, but Senator Warren doesn't want to go away. And she has had a strong campaign in many respects herself. And if she can be competitive in New Hampshire, she's right there with Sanders and she's making a case against Sanders. He should not be the the voice of the left in this race. So a lot of fluid dynamics, uh, dramatic dynamics as we head out of Iowa to New Hampshire, then South Carolina. Yeah, Senator Warren, the the choice of eight year old Samuel Crawford. Uh, you, I asked him a few days ago, who do you, who do you like, buddy? Who do you like? And just he thought about it for a minute. He said, I like Warren, and it's just very pure. It got me thinking. What is it about her that that uh, that this uh, young child uh, feels so warmly towards her. And she's like a school teacher, I think, in a lot of ways. And I say that in a, a very positive way. 
that she has a way of explaining things. Talk about her for a minute, because you would have thought if you follow politics a year and a half ago, you would have thought she was uh, she wouldn't have been able to make a run after uh, the attacks that she received from President Trump. She, she talks about her Native American heritage, um, and President Trump accused her that she was lying about it. She got a DNA test. Uh, she does have some Native American heritage in her blood, uh, but it's not, it, it's not a, whole, a whole lot. Uh, can you talk about how her candidacy rose and then has kind of fallen off a little bit? She has been an advocate for consumers and citizens for decades, uh, looking at the Consumer Protection uh, Agency. She tried. She she helped found inside the Obama administration, uh, and trying to really protect people from financial institutions. And that raised her profile nationally. It led her to run for the Senate in Massachusetts, and. Ever since she was involved with consumer finance advocacy and being a professor at Harvard, so she's been an educator her whole life, grew up in Oklahoma, now a U.S. senator, she's there as a major figure on the American left, someone with a lot of energy, someone who almost ran, we sometimes forget, in 2015 and jumped in the race against Secretary Clinton, probably would have been a very competitive a race as strong as Clinton was, uh, a lot of people were looking for someone on the left to take on Clinton. That's part of why Sanders uh, did so well in different primaries and caucuses in 2016. And she has been building a movement that's separate from Sanders in the sense that Sanders has always been isolated from the Democratic Party in Vermont, been an independent, declared Democrat socialist, Democratic socialist. Warren is more within the democratic infrastructure but still to the left and embraces ideas like Medicare for all. So for many Democrats who liked the fire and the passion and the liberalism in the Sanders campaign of 2016, they saw in Warren someone who wasn't as estranged from the traditional trappings of the Democratic Party but still had that passion and fervor for different liberal issues from the environment to the financial issues. And she speaks about billionaires and banks with the same kind of same kind of language that Senator Sanders often does. And they've avoided fighting each other for months. They, they take some shots at each other's policies here and there. But it's been uh, notable that these two titans of the left have so far resisted taking each other on with any vigor because they are friends. They're actual friends in the U.S. Senate. So let me ask you just just a few more questions, and you've been so so kind with your time. Uh, as we head into New Hampshire uh, next week, next Tuesday, a uh, week from today, do you see anyone getting out of the race between now and then? It's hard to see. Iowa is usually the winnowing process. It, it, they used to be a, a pl- phrase in political journalism. There are three tickets out of Iowa. Of course, there can be more tickets out of Iowa, but the sense was – Conventional wisdom, always not a good thing to follow, but for for years it was true that if you didn't do well in Iowa, it would be very hard uh, to continue on in the race in a serious way because uh, Iowa provides usually such a bounce going into New Hampshire and South Carolina. But without any clear results immediately out of Iowa, you could see a lot of candidates like an Andrew Yang stay in the race because they don't have a lot to lose. And they have, they're more of a message campaign and they may not win anything, but they're, they could be on the debate stage if they can remain high in the polls. Bloomberg's gonna, going to continue to rise. You have to pay attention to Bloomberg sitting there on Super Tuesday. Uh, Tom Steyer as a billionaire, he, he could drop out if he doesn't do well. But for him, it's also like Andrew Yang. He's running more as a cause at times uh, as much as he's trying to win the nomination. 
Uh, Senator Klobuchar will have some financial difficulties if she can't continue to raise a ton of money. She put a huge emphasis on Iowa. It'll be hard to see how she lasts until Super Tuesday unless she gets a real bounce out of Iowa and things happen with Biden and Buttigieg. Uh, so at this point, it's a crowded field until Super Tuesday, at least for the moment. And most Democrats, the strategists I speak with, say that could benefit Sanders or Biden because the, they may not need to be performing in a, such a strong way to continue to lead the pack in, in respective states. Bob, I got to ask you a couple music questions because this is a politics and music podcast. So first I want to ask you, what are you listening to? What do you listen to on the road when you are, are going between campaign events or when you're just traveling between D.C. and New York, which I know you do a lot? Well, I listen to your music, Bob. Got to listen to you. You don't, you don't have to say that. You don't have to say that. But it's true. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I've been listening to some, uh, some classic stuff recently. I like... I've been listening. Pearl Jam's going back on tour, so I've been actually listening to some Pearl Jam, great band, which I've enjoyed. Um, I saw this singer songwriter named Mike Doty. Mike Doughty, he's great. Uh, he's, he's he used to be uh, in a band called Soul Coffee in the nineties. I've been listening to a lot more kind of soundtrack music, to be honest. In this crazy political time, yes. trying to just listen to some more instrumental classical music. Like what? Um, like what? Share, share. Um, there's this there's this uh, guy named Steve Japlonsky. He's a great composer. And um, what else is good? Howard Shore. He's done some amazing soundtracks. I really enjoy the Spotlight soundtrack um, from the journalism movie. Um, the, the, that Danny Elfman soundtrack music for Good Will Hunting. I just I, I kind of go on Spotify sometimes and just noodle around and look for stuff that's not going to get me all riled up because uh, I got I usually have to listen to music while I write in the newsroom. Because it's so loud and people are rushing around, you got to listen to something that's a little chill to get your get your work done. Well, when when you guys go out, I'm sure I'm sure there are sometimes when reporters get together after an event or a shift, and they go to a bar and they're hanging out and they're having maybe a few drinks and they're talking about music. What, what do you guys ever talk about music? Oh, we do. There's a there's a big group of reporters that love live music. Uh, they love your band. They love, you know, I was talking with my friend Jake Sherman the other day from Politico about Derek Trucks and Susan Tedeschi. We're going to go try to see them when they're in D.C. in a few weeks and kind of love that live music experience. What's interesting to me about reporters is that we love the catalog of politics and following different politicians' careers through Senate races, House races, different campaigns and bills and moments and crisis and we follow bands in the same way to trace a discography over the years and to understand different players that have come into bands uh, and come out. And, and you just, you just kind of love to see how music unfolds over time. And, and, and it just it, – it, it, people who, who love reporting usually love baseball cards growing up or they love music. They just love cataloging things and keeping close tabs on how things uh, play out and who, who players are. When you're out there at campaign events, you'll see bands that go out to support uh, a candidate. Yeah. And, and one of the goals of this show is to kind of get to the bottom of that. Like when you, you play music and it's for everyone, it, it, can, it has the ability to cross ideological lines, uh, to cover the entire political spectrum. You're bringing people in. You're not pushing anybody out. You're not alienating anyone. But then you take it when you're a musician— 
you take an, a stand on an issue, and it may be a personal issue, but you take a stand, you back a candidate, and you automatically are separating yourself from others. So what is yeah, – let's talk about that for a minute. Well, it's a, it's a great point, Bob, because I've thought about this a lot. You look at a person like uh, Trey Anastasio Fish. He comes from Vermont. He's clearly an educated, well-informed guy. He stays far away from politics. John Fishman, the drummer in Fish, he gets involved in politics. So the band has a little bit of split in terms of its political involvement, uh, but they try to avoid getting directly involved in partisan politics. This past week, you saw Bonnie Vare and uh, Vampire Weekend play shows in Iowa for Bernie Sanders, and they're playing these shows supporting the candidacy, but they're not out there making speeches for Senator Sanders like Michael Moore. They're just playing shows. Most times I feel like bands for commercial reasons will get involved in advocacy of voter registration and their politics will maybe lean a certain way, but they'll try to avoid direct partisan involvement. And oftentimes bands as enterprises are very hesitant. It's, so it was interesting to see Vampire Weekend as a band do something together for Bernie Sanders to see that kind of unity. Uh, but a lot of times more like singers or bass players or – Keyboard players will do their own thing instead of speaking for the band. And uh, it's interesting to see how bands handle that because sometimes politics can unravel bands. Bands a lot of times – you would know more than anyone, Bob – have fragile ecosystems. And if you inject politics into it, if everyone's not on the same page, there could be bitterness and it puts the music at risk and maybe the audience at risk. So you see a lot of bands operating in careful ways about politics. But this po politics is passion. It's policy, but it's really passion. It's ideas. And what is music but ideas and passion in a different way? So it's not it's not a surprising to see this overlap. And you see it again and again. One of the first musical experiences I had when I was younger was going to see the Vote for Change tour, R.E.M. and Bruce Springsteen in Philadelphia. And you saw the, the mingling of campaign politics and music. Actually, one of the first stories I ever got commissioned in the Wall Street Journal in 2008 when I was in my early 20s was about – campaign music and all the songs that are used on a campaign. And I interviewed Paul Bagala, who worked for Bill Clinton in 1992. And he said to me at the time, and you can go look this up on WSJ.com. He said, I remember it though. He said, a campaign's not finished until it's scored and tracked like it's a movie. And you think about Clinton going on Arsenio Hall in 1992, playing the saxophone and people forget, but the Clinton campaign song was Don't Stop Believing uh, by Fleetwood Mac. And I just saw Fleetwood Mac a few months ago and they played that song and I couldn't help but think of Bill Clinton. You know what's so funny, Bob, is I, I remember watching Arsenio, watching that moment of Bill Clinton playing the saxophone. And for me, I was, I had to be in, in my early 20s, if not, so we're talking about 1992. So I'm like 20, like 21. And it automatically was like, that guy's cool. Like, like it did, it did like, it. oh, you don't see a politician do this. Like it took him out of the staid tradition of what a politician was. He was, he was younger than HW. He was, he was younger than Reagan. He was different. He was, and the Democratic Party at the time had spent a decade in the wilderness, if not more, almost two decades in the wilderness, so to speak, for the most part, other than Carter who wasn't your typical Democrat, uh, you wouldn't think of him that and way. Will, Willie Nelson loved Jimmy Carter. The Allman Brothers liked Jimmy Carter. Carter had a real connection to Southern rock. But you know who was a bassist, Bob? 
it was he still is Mike Huckabee. I do know that over. he's a, I know Huckabee's and he had a TV show for a while that he on Fox Fox News where he would have people come on and he would play bass with them. That was part of his thing. Maybe maybe I'll do that someday. Maybe one day. I, I think That'll what I'll day. do, Bob, I'm going to have a a show and I'll have I'll play bass with my guest, but my guests will all be journalists. And they, they'll play instruments, and I'll play bass. I'll accompany them. How's that sound? That's fine. When I was in high school, I used to manage a band because the only instrument I could play uh, were the bongo drums. So it's best I stick with journalism and just have a conversation. <laughs> well, Bob, you are one of the best journalists of our time. You are recording our first draft of history, and I am so thankful for you taking your valuable time and joining us for this first episode. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate your friendship and all your music. Thanks very much. All right. We'll talk to you soon, brother. Bye-bye. See you later. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media. Produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton. Artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. <laughs>